Snap Studios. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. When I have the illusion of control, even when it's imaginary, driving a car through a blizzard on an icy road at night, something crazy, I'm cool as a cucumber. I think, hey, I'm from Michigan. I've got this. Even when I don't got this. The times when I lose it, the times when I really lose it are the times where I have no pretend control. Like on a plane, I learned the hard way that they discourage rushing toward the cockpit because you felt some turbulence. Or when a loved one is in surgery, all you can do is sit in that little antiseptic room on those plastic chairs and wait. Every moment, losing just a little bit more of your mind, hoping that someone eventually comes out to tell you that it's okay. Now imagine your job is to be the one everyone's waiting on. People you don't know have to put all their trust, all their faith, all their hope in you. Not because they want to, no. Because they don't have any other option. Today in Snap Judgment, you proudly present the negotiators. My name is Glenn Washington, and don't worry. I promise for the next hour, you're in very good hands. Because you're listening to Snap Judgment. Mickey Bergman. Now, Mickey's a professional negotiator, and he spends a lot of his time trying to get hostages released. Mickey's going to pull back the curtain for us and provide a play-by-play of just one of these negotiations. It's not just any negotiation. It involves heavy hitters, like the U.S. State Department and the Commander-in-Chief of Myanmar. Mickey's boss is Bill Richardson, the former governor of New Mexico, and you'll hear Mickey refer to him as Governor Richardson, or just the governor. Snap judgment. Danny gets arrested on May 24th. Um, Within the same day, I get a Facebook message from a friend of mine who I haven't seen in 20 years. And she says, hey, Mickey, I'm on a Facebook group of lawyers And one of them is saying that she has a relative that was just arrested in Myanmar and seeking help. Do you mind if I put her in touch with you? And of course, I responded immediately. It's like, yes, here's my details. And literally within two hours, we were already on the call with Danny's brother, Brian. Brian tells me, look, as far as we know, 
Danny has been detained at the airport. All we know is through texts that he sent his wife, but we are looking to figure out what to do with this. We're kind of lost. Danny Fenster, a young journalist, worked for two different publications in Myanmar. One of them was Myanmar Now, and the other one was Frontier. At the time of arrest, he was working for Frontier. And Frontier is a magazine, it has, he was an editor there, not even a, a writer. It's a legitimate publication, there's no ban against it since the coup in Myanmar. But Myanmar now is banned. The military government, the junta in Myanmar banned Myanmar now because of their work in opposing them. And they have claimed that Danny's name was still on Myanmar now's website as an employee. And that's why he was initially detained. Danny's brother, Brian, immediately started a social media campaign. Very effective, by the way. I had a conversation with him at some point in which he asked me if I think that was a major mistake. Why? Because it is the default approach by the government typically to tell the family, oh, if you make a big deal out of it, the price will increase for getting him out. That is generally untrue. You have to realize, as a family, the objective of your public campaign or strategy, media strategy, is not to convince the captors to release your loved ones. You're not going to do that. You can't convince the military junta in Myanmar to release your loved ones. You can't convince Nicolas Maduro in Venezuela to release your loved ones. The sole target of your media strategy as a family is to put pressure on our own government to solve the issue. And so the target and the objective is the president of the United States on this. So the first thing we do after I speak to Brian is inform the State Department that we have been approached by the family so they know that we're working it as well. The challenge for the U.S. government at that point, because of the coup and the military government in Myanmar, the U.S. government has zero engagement. We don't recognize them, and therefore we can't engage with them at high level. So the ability of the U.S. government to actually get into the work and negotiations to release an American citizen is limited to advocacy through third parties. So what we decided to do is to pull on our old relationships because this is not the first time we are engaging with Myanmar. When we looked at, in terms of our strategy of trying to get Danny back home, there are basically two big parts of it. The first one is getting to the meeting, getting invited, getting to that meeting with the leader of the country, the, the leader of the military, the commander-in-chief, in order to be able to actually make the request. And the second big part is once you're in, what's your tactic of how to actually negotiate for a release? But it might be surprising that so much of the negotiations, not about the release, it's just negotiations of how do you get in front of a person to have the meeting so you can actually negotiate. And so we were trying to figure out how we can get to send a message because you can't just pick up the phone and get somebody there. You need to have some sort of an avenue. It's common that we end up reaching out to questionable people or that questionable people reach out to us. And some of these might seem like they're completely crazy, but there has been instances in the past where some of the crazy actually worked. 
Of course, we don't do anything illegal, but we do engage with people with complicated backgrounds. So we had a few individuals in Myanmar, including former military, retired military there, uh, that are good friends and that we trust them, that we ask them. Some of them were not willing to engage in that. And some of them were not Myanmar nationals. They were actually international people, Americans and, and other nationals that had we knew had relationships. And with them, it was just a matter of, would you mind vouching for us so we can get that initial conversation? And that process takes time. And uh, for us, basically, it, there was a period between the end of May when we stepped into it until the middle of August that we actually managed to break through. We got a note from the foreign minister to say that he is looking forward to talking to the governor and set up a time for a call. The foreign minister tells Governor Richardson that they would love to see us come and visit and to focus our discussions on humanitarian assistance and COVID assistance. The governor does not raise the issue of Danny Fenster. We know that they know we're interested in that. And they know Governor Richardson's history as well. It's a big story. It's a big issue. They're holding an American, not a dual citizen, an American journalist. There is no reason to raise it because we knew that the only way to resolve it is when we get to the leader himself. So two weeks after the call with the foreign minister, we received the letter of invitation. And it's a very positive letter, very succinct, and saying we're excited to, it's very friendly. We, you know, we look forward to seeing you, to hosting you in Myanmar. And we take that letter, we immediately share it with the State Department to let them know that we got it. That's when things start changing in the relationship between us and the U.S. government. Within two hours of us sharing that letter, we get a call from the State Department asking us to hold. When I ask why, they said, because we have an indication that in a few days he will be released. Of course, the State Department doesn't share with us what those indications are. We asked, but they can't, because we don't have a security clearance and that was classified. And I said, I'll, you know, thank you, I'll discuss this with the governor. And the governor and I talk and we realize that there's no way we're going to be able to get on the ground before that anyway. Might as well comply and see what happens. Once the State Department asked us to hold, a bunch of other things started happening. The head of the Global Fund, which is the UN entity backing the UN's effort on vaccines and international vaccines when it comes to, to COVID, the person that we reached out just a week before and scheduled a call, cancelled. It was never rescheduled. It just seemed as if the US government is doing everything they can to shut down our effort. And we basically started preparing for ourselves what is our list of things that we can bring to discussion because we wanted to be very genuine with the government of Myanmar. They invited us to talk about this. We need to come and talk about this. Can't be fake. It's not a Trojan horse. It has to be real and it has to be tangible. And so we engaged with the UN humanitarian agencies to see what they might need, what their priorities are, just to get a sense of what it is that we can advance. And then I get a message from the U.S. Embassy in Yangon that tells me, well, you're just going to have to trust us on this. We know what we're doing. 
for me, that's a trigger. I have to admit, it's a trigger because whoever is the person that sent it to me, and it was a high-level official from the embassy there, you don't use that language. A, you don't know what you're doing because this is your first time ever dealing with a case like that. We have decades of experience in this. And second, you have to trust us. I don't know you. Why would I trust you? If you tell me what it is that you're doing, maybe I'll believe it. But September 5th came, Danny Fenster had his hearing, and was remanded for two more weeks. I had another call with State Department, and I was told, no, 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 please wait two more weeks because there's still a COVID lockdown. In two weeks, he has another one, then it will be resolved. We contemplated again, we decided to comply again and delay. At this time, we're just playing with the foreign minister in Myanmar about the dates of when we can do it logistically. So we're already more than a month since we got an invitation that we're getting delayed from State Department or asked by State Department to delay. October 6th, Danny Fenster has another court hearing in which not only he is remanded for two more weeks, but they added more charges against him. And I'll say something here, too, in general. When there's charges filed against an individual, now you know that the captors are digging in. And it's going to be a longer term, and you need to start playing the humanitarian political game. And that's when the governor and I have a conversation, and we say State Department is 100% wrong. It's going the other direction. We need to make a move. And so we schedule our trip. The day before we take off, I call Brian Fenster and I tell him, look, finally, our trip is going ahead. But I need to tell you something. The State Department is asking us not to raise Danny, Danny's name, when we're there. Repeatedly, the State Department asked us to delink our visit from Danny Fenster, and then I paused because I needed to see his reaction. He was silent for a few seconds and then he said, well, I guess if that's what they're asking, maybe they know what they're doing. And I said, okay, but I have to tell you, Brian, that if we have an opportunity to bring him home, we're not going to leave him behind. And I was laughing and Brian was laughing. He's like, yeah, please don't leave him behind if, if you have an opportunity to bring him. And that was basically the minimum mandate that we needed. We were genuinely going to go on this mission private humanitarian mission, talk about humanitarian assistance, talk about COVID. And if we had the opportunity, if we felt we had the opportunity, we would make the push for Danny. Um, it's great when things have happy endings, but it also, the curse of it is that when you're not successful, like you stay awake in the middle of the night thinking about this. I'm thinking about my daughter and I'm thinking what it would feel like for her to be locked up somewhere. And you feel terrible about this. Because every day that you haven't been able to bring somebody home is a failure. And you know what that means to the families. And we took off the next day. We arrived directly to the capital, Nepida, and we have meetings with about four different ministers over those, the span of two days. The Minister of Health, the Foreign Minister, of course, the Minister of Social Welfare, and the Home Affairs Minister. And we stick to the points that they've invited us to discuss. On the second day, that's when we had the scheduled meeting with the commander-in-chief. 
now we had the big challenge of, okay, how do we make this meeting successful? We do not raise Danny Fenster in that meeting. We talk about COVID. We talk about the discussions we had with his ministers about humanitarian issues. And towards the end of that meeting, the governor asks the commander-in-chief and says, can we spend just a few minutes, just you and I? The governor had to achieve in those few minutes a connection with a person he's never met before and a personal attachment. And if he felt that that was working, then he can raise the request. If not, he doesn't. We did our research before about the leader. One of the really interesting things that we know is that he is a very quiet individual. His voice doesn't project. He doesn't give bombastic speeches. He's almost shy a little bit, which is not what you expect from the head of a military that just did a coup and now is the head of the country. But we saw that as something interesting. And so when I prepared a little note for the governor, like talking points, handwritten, basically from a pad, um, I wrote four points. And the first one was to talk to the leader about his leadership. And the governor basically told him, look, you know, General, I meet a lot of leaders. And I've met a lot of leaders around the world, around my career, over 30 years. You have a unique kind of leadership. You're quiet. It's a quiet leadership. And I know that people tell you that you need to be all charismatic and bombastic, but I'm telling you, this is actually really, really powerful. You should feel good about that. At that moment, the commander-in-chief took his glasses off and they engaged in a really long personal conversation about how it feels to suddenly be a leader of a country that you didn't intend to necessarily what does it mean on your family? A lot of personal stuff. And so they made that connection. The second point that the governor talked to him about, he told him, you know, General, I'm getting criticized for coming here to see you. I'm a politician. It's okay. I'm used to it. I have thick skin. So let them criticize. I'm doing this because I love the people of Myanmar and I want to be helpful to the people of Myanmar. But if you want to help me with my critics... There is something you can do. And that was the third point. He said, there is this young American guy here, Danny Fenster. If you give him to me, you'll shut up all the critics. The leader obviously knew about Danny. He asked the governor a bunch of questions about Danny, about Danny's wife. He mentioned that it was raised to him by some of the other conduits. And after a little bit of a back and forth, he asked the governor, is this a big deal? And the governor said, yeah, it will be a big story in the United States, but I don't need you to do it for that. I want you to do it for me. When we return, can the governor convince the leader of Myanmar to release American journalist Danny Finster? Stay tuned. Support for Snap Judgment comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it. Odoo's got it. To learn more, 
visit odoo.com slash snap. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash snap. Welcome back to Snap Judgment, the negotiator's episode. And last we left, hostage negotiator Mickey Bergman was telling us how the governor had finally secured an in-person meeting with the leader of Myanmar to do the big ask. Would he release American journalist Danny Finster? And at that point, the leader looked at him and said, you know, I'm going to give him and I'm going to give him to you and I'm going to do it here. But it's going to take me time. And the governor looked at him and said, they laughed and he said, well, I have my plane here for two more days. And the leader said, no, no, it will take me more than that. And the governor said, what, what do you think? And the leader said, well, two weeks, maybe a month. And the governor said, let's do it less. And the leader said, will you come back for it? And the governor said, absolutely. He said, okay, let me work on that. And the fourth point was actually very important to me. And I told the governor, only if you're successful in everything to that point, was to raise, we had a, a young woman that worked for us for the years that we've done the engagement in Myanmar, Aimo. She's a very good friend of mine because I got to know her over the years and, and she's just a fantastic young woman from Myanmar, yeah. She's local in Myanmar, politically active and has been arrested in one of the demonstrations and has been thrown into jail. And I gave the governor a picture of me, her and the governor from one of the trainings that we did. And in the back, her name and where she's from so he can identify. And the governor said, look, there's, there's this young woman. She used to work for us. She's a teacher. She did a lot of the training, focused on women. Would you mind releasing her to me? You know, she needs to be back with her family. And the leader didn't know who she was, but he started asking, what did she do? And the governor said, well, she probably agitated you guys in the streets. And they were laughing about this. And he said, she'll be at your hotel tomorrow. When you read about a leader like that, or when you hear other people talk about him and you think you're going to meet a monster, and then you meet an individual, a complete individual, very, very devout Buddhist, personal. I'm not saying that to take away from everything that he's responsible for. I'm just This is just the complexities of human beings. You know, whether we agree with what they do, and of course we don't, but I want to break that sense of good and evil because as you work in this field, you realize the world is way more gray and people who are responsible for terrible things doesn't mean that they're all evil. Altogether, that meeting was about 45 minutes. We thought it would be five, which was a good indication. The next day, we were scheduled to meet with the U.S. Embassy in Yangon, the ambassador there, and we asked the U.S. ambassador in Yangon to call in about 10 ambassadors from other countries, allies of the U.S., so we can brief them about our humanitarian conversations and COVID stuff. And at the end of that meeting, the ambassador asked the governor, what about Danny Fenster? And the governor looks at him and he says, you, meaning State Department, asked us not to raise Danny Fenster. And the ambassador said, yeah, I know, but did, did you talk about it? And... And the governor repeated that line, you have asked us not to raise Danny Fenster. And the reason why it was so important for us to do that, first of all, because that was the request 
And second, because the agreement with the leader, the commander in chief was, we cannot tell anybody that he's working on it. That was our first priority. But as we're on the plane on the way back, we also start seeing a lot of the social media about our visit and criticizing us, of course, because we didn't bring Danny Fenster home. We gave legitimacy to the leader, all of that, all of the stuff that we expected. And I texted Brian from the plane and I said, hey, we're airborne right now. Can we talk on Monday so I can debrief you? And this is on signal. So I can see that he, he received it, but he didn't respond. And the governor was asking me, like, what do you think is happening on this? And I said, I think that the narrative that we have failed him, they believe it. Maybe even the U.S. government told him that. And the governor asked me, Are you, do you want to go to Detroit to meet with the family and just to explain to them what happens? And I told him, look, I, every fiber of my being wants to do that because I can't. It's hard for me to know that they're so mad at us right now, not for a good reason. But I said, I think we shouldn't. And we agreed that we shouldn't because if we are right about what was happening, in a week it's not going to matter. We're going to have Danny and everything is going to be done. But if I go to Detroit and I have a bad meeting with them, they tell us we're off the case and we don't have a mandate to go and pick him up. The next few days were very difficult. We just got slammed everywhere. And Danny's trial in Myanmar was accelerated. And he was convicted and received a sentence. I think it was 11 years or 14 years. And everybody blamed us for this. Not only did we not get him, but we actually got him the maximum sentence. And that's difficult to approach. But we also knew that that's why the leader needed time. He needed to finish the trial. He needed to convict him. And by the way, the harsher the sentence, the bigger and grand, more grandiose the gesture of a pardon is. So it's, it's kind of counterintuitive when you feel like as a family, oh my God, 14 years, 11 years in jail. But it is a dramatic buildup. But we couldn't tell the family and we couldn't tell our own government. And we waited. On uh, November 9th, I receive a message from the chief protocol, who's my contact with the government in Myanmar, to say that our sensitive request is ready. Can you be in Myanmar on Monday the 15th, so six days later? And then we start racing and putting together the second mission, the extraction mission, which we just realized is going to be way more complicated than the first one. We had basically four days to put it together because if we needed to be in Myanmar on Monday, we needed to take off from the U.S. on Saturday. Initially, I thought, oh, we'll use the same plane we used before. That plane was not available. We didn't have a plane. So we needed to find a charter. And you start looking for a private jet in the Middle East that is willing to fly to Myanmar in an anti-Muslim government is complicated. And eventually we found a plane that is owned by a Lebanese person. We had to fly commercially from New York to Doha, then have a private jet from Doha to Myanmar. A day before we took off, the owner of the plane 
sent a query to us saying, why are there four people in the manifesto going in and five on the way back? And the operator responded to him, oh, it's a prisoner they're bringing back. And at that point, the owner flipped and said, wait a minute, because in his mind, we're going guns blazing in order to rescue somebody using his plane. And so he, re- he demanded that we have a letter from the U.S. government to say that this is legitimate. And I had the unfortunate pleasure to let him know that he can't get that letter because the U.S. government doesn't know <laughs> that we're doing this. But I would sign an affidavit that there's no weapons involved and that before the prisoner boards the plane, I will provide in English his release letters. So when we took off that Saturday towards Myanmar, we didn't know exactly what to expect. We were confident they're giving him to us because otherwise they wouldn't send me his passport. They wouldn't send me the release papers, all these things that they did. But there was no agreement or no talk about how it's going to look like. Will they call him in and do this humiliating kind of media event around it? And that was something that we were worried about. We have another meeting with the commander-in-chief before the, the actual handover. And we had one objective for that meeting, not to screw it up. We just can't make any mistakes. And so we rehearsed and rehearsed on what we say, what we don't say. And in that meeting, the governor asked, you know, so how is it going to happen? Are you going to bring him here? Are there going to be like videos, cameras? And the leader said, no, 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 that will be not dignified. He's waiting for you at the airport. And that's when it truly struck me, the religious convictions of the, of the leader. He had an opportunity to make this a big splash. He didn't. It's a 10-minute drive from the palace to the airport. We got to the airport, and that's when we saw Danny for the first time. That's when you really know that you have the person, because you don't believe it until it's there. Danny seemed completely confused. He had no idea what was happening. They picked him up that morning from the prison, which is about five hours' drive down in Yangon. They shackled him, both legs and arms. Nobody spoke English, so he had no idea. He told us that in his mind, he thought that he's going to be sent to a prison, a different prison where he would disappear. But then they made him wait at the airport, so he figured that something was going on. And um, then we saw him. And I operated very quickly on this. So the governor saw him exchange a few words. And then I was to grab Danny very quickly and take him to the plane. And let the governor do all the goodbyes and all of that stuff. And as I was taking Danny to the plane, I called his brother. And just said, hey, Brian, I have Danny here. You have one minute to talk to him. They spoke a little bit. And then I, I took him up to the plane. And Danny, who's <laughs> he's a very funny guy, <laughs> And he's like, Mickey, I, have a, I need to ask you a question. I'm sorry. I, I just, who is this guy? And I look, you mean Governor Richardson? He's like, that's what I thought. But I was told last week that he's the reason I got the sentencing. And I said, well, you were told a lot of things that were not accurate. But it doesn't matter. We'll have time to debrief. We're going home. As we took off from Myanmar and left the airspace, I called from the pilot side at phone to our Qatari friends and I said, we have an American prisoner. We have four hours in Doha. We need you to provide us an ambulance to do a PCR test, to do a wellness check so he can board a commercial flight to the U.S. 
to their credit, they were fantastic. They immediately said, of course, we will do that. And then they said, but we have a request. Said, what is that? Would the governor be willing to do a two-minute interview on the tarmac with Al Jazeera when, when they land? And I looked, and this is a tiny plane, and I just look at the, at the governor and, and Danny. And Danny's like in the back, like, oh, I'll do that. And I said, you got a deal. As we took off, I also raised a glass and, and wished uh, Governor Richardson a happy birthday. It was his birthday. <laughs> and Danny couldn't believe it, that that was what he was doing on his birthday. But I also told Danny, he's like, you know, you've been, you've been in prison for six months. All you had was like rice and water. This is a private jet. There might be some fancy food here. Just take it slow. Do us a favor. I don't need you to go on a seizure here. And he's like, no, no, of course, of course. And... <laughs> And of course, he got a big cocktail shrimp, beer, and, and coffee. That's <laughs> like, <laughs> We arrived in Doha. They had the ambulance there. They gave him the test. Thank God he was negative to COVID. I think that that's when the crew of the plane realized that this is an awkward flight that they were on because they didn't know what was happening before. But they saw all these lights and, you know, it was like paparazzi all around. And <laughs> this extraction trip was a a Lebanese plane with two Lebanese pilots flying an American team, including a former military special ops from Israel, to rescue a Jewish journalist from an anti-Muslim government. And we told them that, you know, it's a big deal. We had a long wait in Doha. I told him, look, we can, we can buy you some clothes and some shoes because, my God, he had a... He had like, you know, flip-flops that were falling apart. His clothes were just a mess. They gave him a big clear plastic bag with all of his possessions, including, by the way, US dollar cash that he had, like $10,000 in cash that he had when he was leaving. They gave him everything back, but in a clear plastic bag. So he was walking in the terminal there with this. So we, we got him a bag and we, we browsed a little bit. And then he said, you know, Mickey, I think it's going to look better when I show up in JFK the way I look right now. <laughs> and I was like, you know, Danny, I really like you. <laughs> we organized a press event for, uh, for the November 16th when we were landing in JFK. We asked his family to wait at the TWA hotel there because we didn't... JFK was not very excited to have a press conference at their arrivals. And we were arriving commercially, so we were <laughs> we we're just walking through immigration there, like any you know the immigration officer looks at Danny Fences like, your reason for your trip was it business or pleasure? And like, what do you answer for that after six months of prison? And we just walked out there, and then the moment of him meeting with the family was was very emotional. When they meet him at JFK, it's all about them. We step aside. The only exchange I had with Brian on this. He hugged me and said, thank you. And I said, at any given point, if you want to debrief about everything, we can do that. I actually had my daughter came up to JFK for that. She's eight, because I wanted her to witness that and to see that, to understand why I'm gone for so long and to understand what, what it is that I do. One of the things that this case made so clear to me was that we fail when we think about negotiations. We think of negotiations as a give and take, as a transaction in many ways. And I think we need to think about negotiations as our ability to influence somebody else's behavior. The commander-in-chief, we didn't give him anything in return for Danny Fenster. More than that, he didn't ask for anything. 
It was based on a relationship. And yes, you can say, well, you gave him legitimacy because you came and visit. That is true. But it wasn't a transaction that way. And I think that's something that we tend to forget about negotiations. We tend to forget about this. Our own diplomats tend to forget about this. So much of it is about the personal relationships that you can build. Sometimes it's years in the making. Sometimes it's in moments. And in this case, it was both. Um, over New Year's, Danny sent me a text. And he said, hey, you know, Mickey, I just want to uh, please send the governor and your team, everybody, you know, happy New Year for me. And thanks, uh, you know, for my freedom and stuff. Big thanks to Mickey Bergman for sharing this story. Foreign policy asked the State Department about the issues Bergman raised in this piece, but no one there wanted to comment on the record. They did hear in writing from one person who could be described only as a senior U.S. official working on Asia policy. The statement said, quote, From day one of Danny's detention, our teams in Burma and the United States worked tirelessly to reunite Danny with his family. We are grateful to all who helped secure Danny's release, including those within the U.S. government, members of Congress, partner countries, and Governor Richardson. Mickey Bergman's book about his negotiations will be published by Hachette Center Street Imprint very soon. The Negotiators is hosted by Jen Williams. Dan Ephraim, the executive editor of podcast at Foreign Policy, produced this story. Laura Rosbrow-Tellum is the show's senior producer. The negotiators team includes Japhet Weeks, Rob Sachs, Rosie Julin, Claudia Tatey, Jagar Mehta, and Amjad Atala. Big thanks to Nelifa Hadayat, Govinda Clayton, and to James Wally for helping to create the show. Original music for this story is by Dirk Swartzoff. Snap editorial support from Nancy Lopez. Yes, there are more stories in the Negotiators podcast, each episode featuring a dramatic negotiation while a link at snapjudgment.org. Yes, 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 it is that time. But remember, Snap stories are like birthday cake. They're for sharing. Hours of incredible stories for your drive for walking the dog, for doing the dishes, the laundry, all the things you hate to do becomes things you can't wait to do. Because of the Snap Judgment Podcast, it's magical. So it's brought to you by the team that always places their keys on the hook next to the door each and every evening so there's no frantic searching come morning time. Except for the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. He has no idea, even now, where his keys might be. There's Nancy Lopez, Pat Massini-Miller, Regina Bediaco, David Exume, Anna Sussman, Renzo Gorio, Shayna Sheely, Teo Decott, Flo Wiley, John Fasile, Marissa Dodge, Bo Walsh, Annie Nguyen, Zara Norbosh, and Doug Stewart. And please know that this is not the news. No way is this the news. In fact, you could dodge the... Laser beam sensors, bust open the door, shoot all the bad guys with the tranquilizer darts, crack open the safe with the secret code, only to discover. Instead of the jewels. There's the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Richards' keys, right there in the safe. And you would still, still 
not be as far away from the news as this is. But this is PR.